Hi, everybody. Producer Jason here with a little note before this episode starts. We recorded this the day before Google announced that it would start making podcasts easier to search by actually indexing them. So if you now search the term podcast along with whatever other terms you'd like, you will be able to have indexed podcasts returned to you. Further, you'll be able to play those podcasts directly in your search results which is one good incremental step towards making audio generally more searchable and findable, which are two things we talk about in this episode at a bit of length. So forgive our ignorance of the future then, but I think the premise still holds. Enjoy. I love this. Now we're now we're getting. When we, whenever we get to this, somebody's going to kill me for saying this. That's my favorite <laughs> part of the pod. That's generally speaking where we open. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Human Element Karis podcast focused on modern marketing. I am so excited to have Gina Garubo president and CEO of National Public Media with me. We're so happy to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. It is an August afternoon here in New York City. I, I just checked Twitter. Nothing's going on. So I think we can I think we can do this safely and not have to get into current events. Awesome. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about your role at National Public Media, as well as a little bit um, on what that is and how it might be different than NPR. So I am president and CEO of National Public Media, a sponsorship subsidiary of NPR. And we are a full-service sponsorship unit. So we have teams that work with our brand sponsors and their agencies to create audio and digital campaigns across all of our platforms, from radios to smart speakers to podcasts to apps, et cetera. It's pretty exciting. That's job. pretty. That's pretty fun. It right? is. Like when I think jobs that could be awesome, like I'm, I'm putting your job on the list. Thank you. All it right. is. You've had a history in your career of sort of being in spaces that I would call at least, if not fully mission driven, mission aligned. Talk to me a little bit about why you've made that decision in your career. Well, it was interesting. I had a a dream job at the Discovery Channel in the 90s. I was running Eastern Advertising Sales. I was really happy. Discovery in those days was just a fantastic place to be. But Mm. they asked me to oversee the internet strategy for discovery.com and monetization. And I was just besieged with search firms looking to hire heads of advertising sales. And I got a call from women.com and checked it out online. They had five to seven channels from money and work to fashion and entertainment. But it was a voice I never heard for women. They Mm. assumed women were intelligent. They were making money. They were buying cars. They were investing their own monies. It it was so different from the traditional women's magazines who are giving you do's and don'ts, not just about makeup and hair, but about living your life. So it was fantastic to come into that and work with some of the biggest brands in the world like P&G and say, you know, what you're doing in daytime television is great, but this is a different kind of woman. You're really going to have to have a different kind of voice when you spend time with her in the online space. And that's work or association that still continues, right? That's still a part of sort of your 
focus? Well, I spent 15 years in the women's space between women.com, blog, her, and Oxygen Media. And so I'm very pro-women, but I'm also just pro-democratic. So (laughs) when you look at podcasts, you know, the fact that there are thousands of voices out in the world that otherwise wouldn't have existed, that was the blog her model, where we gave a 50% revenue share to the bloggers from sponsorship. And these women in farmhouses in the Midwest were writing these gorgeous pieces on everything from medical information to literature. And then YouTube came on the scene, very similar, the democratization of media. And, but when that happened, you know, we worked with brands at Blog Her similarly to women.com in terms of this audience really needs and expects to be spoken to or related to in a very different way. And it's interesting because audio on demand has created a different consumer expectation as well. A, it's your world. You chose it. You're curating the on-demand experience. A lot of times people have earbuds in. You're in somebody's head. So it's much more preferable at least from the NPR audience standpoint, for brands to come talk to them about what they do and what they offer, as opposed to maybe a more traditional commercial, buy it, buy it, price, 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 hit you over the head kind of thing. Well, I mean, that was always the thing with radio. And I talk about radio like it's gone. It's not. But (laughs) that was always the thing with radio is that there's a level of intimacy with radio that makes it compelling. And some of that has to do with the degree to which it's attached to individual personalities. But some of that's just about, you know, I'm in my car, I'm by myself. It's this combination of I am looking to connect with a community or so, you know, something broader, but I'm also enjoying this moment of, you know, being alone. It's the intersection of that that, that sort of gives it an intimacy. And for me, podcasting's the same or, or, or audio, digital audio is the same. There is a very strong emotional connection yeah. that people have to the audio they listen to. And audio is the number one thing people do on their smartphones now. Mm. And spoken word audio, which I'm here to root for, has doubled. I love that we're rooting for things. This makes me excited. Yes. Obviously, music is near and dear and the number one thing people are doing. But spoken word audio has doubled in the last five years. And smart speakers are bringing radio back into the house. 90 million people listened to podcasts last month. It's a really exciting time for audio. Is there something about this moment of, in time where we sort of have, a, I think, a collective yearning for more humanity, for more human connection? Do you think there's something about that that plays into the sort of acceleration of the audio space? I think it's a confluence of the ease of audio on demand anywhere, anytime, and the evolving consumer habits. I do feel that YouTube and social media have created an expectation of authenticity and transparency Mm. for publishers and brands that never existed before. And I do think people yearn to hear human voices. Mm. And one of the things that inspires me about being at NPR is that our journalists around the world bring those voices 
to people from all over the world, very different voices. And that does resonate emotionally. Yeah, it certainly does for me. And I'm particularly, I'm A, incredibly sentimental, and B, particularly sentimental today. So this could all be the gauzy film of that. But there's something positively sentimental about audio to me, that it recalls a less cluttered time. And I feel like my consumption of information is less cluttered when it's just voice. That's fascinating. Now, that is a, let's be clear, that is a survey of one very old, crazy man. But that's my theory of the day. But Edison Research, every year they publish their share of ear report. And when people become podcast listeners, Mm. it becomes the number one way in which they want to consume audio. Certainly true for me. So you did a a pod with Digiday, I think, not too long ago. And I don't want to copy their very expertly done pod. But you you talked about something in that that kind of struck me. You were sort of asked about, is this the golden age of audio or something like that? And, you know, to me, I love it when we do things like that. We're either do- proclaiming the death of something or the golden age of something. It's, it's, uh, first, it's like a human condition. We must do these things. But the thing that was mentioned in your answer that I thought was really interesting is, let's assume that we're at a high point, but we're not at the peak of it because there's a lot still to come. And the thing you mentioned in particular was that we don't have audio indexable in search. Talk to me a little bit about that. Right. So I think discoverability is a challenge for both listeners and publishers of podcasts. And being as mature as I am in the business, I know what is going to be may not even exist. Mm -hmm. And it may only be a year away. Because I was there with Netscape and Yahoo way before Google ever came along. And Google, obviously, is a part of all of our lives and fantastic. They are promising to make audio as prominent a part Mm -hmm. of search. But what if something else comes along? that transforms audio search. We just don't know. And I'm very excited about what Spotify is doing in terms of putting podcasts front and center. They just launched Daily Drive. They're featuring NPR's news briefs, and it's bringing a younger audience. And I get excited when I hear about new audio formats that are reaching listeners that have never really spent time in spoken word audio. There's kind of two pieces to it, right? One is the interface itself, right? So Google's got a material business challenge, which is when search has a different interface that is audio-driven, what are they going to do? That's question one. And then the second piece is, what do you do with all this content that isn't text content, and how do you make it more discoverable? And that's kind of interesting to sort of think of it from both those angles. Well, it's interesting because I think audio will be a greater part of social. I think people Mm. are sharing spoken word audio to an extent that never existed, especially audio that didn't exist before. So back to the democratic, you have all these new voices coming onto the scene. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, all right, I'll buy the golden age argument. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about your conversations with CMOs, right? Because part of your job is, hey, marketer X, here's what's going on and here's why and why it's important and relevant and how you should be thinking about it. 
what is sort of your engagement mechanism for CMOs as it relates to building an audio strategy? When we speak to CMOs and their teams and agencies, we really try to first inform about changing consumer behavior. Mm. So even though smart speakers have a 28% penetration, we believe it's that high. many of the smart wow. speaker owners demonstrate consumption habits that may be representative of future generations. Mm. So, for example, 55% are listening to more spoken word, 34% bought a smart speaker to avoid screen time. 28% are watching less television. 68% are listening with family and friends around. 44% of people who have smart speakers are using the voice activation on their phones more. Mm. So a voice activation is very much in the future. Audio should be a part of most brands' media mix. Yep. I recommend unless they have a very clear sonic strategy, even if they do have a clear sonic strategy, they should work with the publishing partners that are currently reaching their audience, if possible, to create audio experiences that fit in the tone and keeping of that environment. Yep. So audio has in the landscape. And also look at the non-duplication information of audiences because you have a whole spectrum of people who are moving away from commercial media and going to subscription services. Yep. And brands may not be reaching those people. And audio on demand could have a greater role there. What marketers and brands are doing it well? I think one of the brands we're thrilled to be working with is American Express. Mm. They came on board a number of years ago and focused on our How I Built This podcast, which enables Guy Raz, the host, to interview entrepreneurs in terms of how they made it. They went from sponsoring that and other podcasts to sponsoring the How I Built This live tapings to being the presenting sponsor at the How I Built This summit. And so they've just expanded how they relate to NPR audiences in different venues across different mechanisms. And their custom audio focuses on these business lounges they have that they yeah. designed around consumer insights showing we're all working 24-7. And when people come into these lounges, they don't care if there's a printer. They want to talk to their family. They want to chill out. They want to be humans. American Express doesn't want to be a, just a credit card to people. They, they want to be relatable to sure. people. That's a great example. A challenging category, too. I will tell you that, and I think... Our audience may be a little forward-leaning. 81% of NPR's listeners care and are happy when brands talk about more than just the products they're selling. That's from your own internal research? It is. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great stat. That's a great stat. You know, one of the things that's changed most in marketing is it's not just the stuff of what we do, but it's the how we do it that's changed so much. So how do you kind of do that across... The sponsorship organization, the editorial and creative teams, the client organization. How have you tried to tackle the change in how we work as a combined sort of multidisciplinary team? National Public Media being a subsidiary of NPR, we're very much a part of NPR, but there is a very 
very significant line between editorial and sponsorship, but it's very collaborative in terms of being very clear in what the NPR journalistic intention is, Mm -hmm. what new shows. So, for example, Anya Grundman, who is the SVP of content at NPR, is building daily podcasts, Mm. short-form podcasts, informational podcasts. And she is working very closely with our marketing and products team to make sure that the NPM group has all they need to go out and talk about it in the world. So it's seamless. With digital product, we have a uh, digital sponsorship product teams that's building skills, that's doing voice-activated programs for brands, and that team collaborates with the NPR digital team. Yep. We're separate entities, but collaborative partners. So you're having, for lack of a better description or more accurate description, you're having essentially, you know, product unit conversations about, so if you're going to go build XYZ, you know, daily pod, what is the best way to maximize engagement and make it match up with user needs the best way from a unit perspective? I would have to say that from an audience engagement standpoint, because there are some circumstances where a 15-second pre-roll is not appropriate. Yep. Because you don't want to alienate the audience. And so we might have a 15-second post-roll after a news brief because... You know, it's seven minutes long. One of the phrases I heard you use in one of these videos I watched was light consumers of commercial media, (laughs) which in today's day and age is, I think everybody's trying to get there, but some people are further ahead than others. What advice would you have for marketers who are trying to think about that kind of an audience? Generally, when we speak to brands, we say, just share don't sell. Mm. We did a NeuroInsight study which showed that sponsor messages on NPR that are fact-based are more memorable than traditional commercial radio ads. Mm. It has to do with the fact that our audience is leaning in and they want to learn something to begin with. We actually work with brands to script their messages to reveal something. Yeah to the audience because they're there to learn something. And 77% of NPR listeners appreciate the brands that support NPR. I've worked at a lot of media companies. We never had that kind of halo. And so our full-time job is managing that ability for brands to say, this is who I am in the world and this is what I'm bringing to the world without selling And it's going to make you smart and beautiful and perfect if you buy it. (laughs) It's just not necessary. (laughs) Well, and it's it's just not credible, right? The great thing, though, from a a lifelong brand marketer perspective is it's a lot more difficult to build a brand these days, right? The, the, The pitfalls are greater. The work that has to be done is greater. The, you know, number of things you have to make, the three dimensional chess you have to play. But Finding those environments, and this is why I'm so keen on audio as a marketer, finding those places where you can be authentic and get more emotional value for, you know, this moment, I think is super important. And to me, this is one of those places. And so I, 
you know, as we redefine what it is to be a brand marketer, those two things overlap quite well. Well, it's interesting. I have heard Brett Kinsella say the transition from traditional to web and then web to mobile was a lot easier than this transition from digital to voice is going to be. So if we have a voice-activated future and brands don't understand what their voice is going to be in that world, it's going to be a greater challenge for them. And that's why we say to brands, look, this is an environment you really need to start working in. And there isn't any one right way to do it. And it's not just about a sonic jingle. It's how you are relating through voice yeah. and tone. Yeah, it's infinitely more strategic and creative than that. Let's also pray we get the creative talent on the agency and brand side as jazzed about this as a million-dollar commercial because that's been part of, of the, the challenge, challenge sure. in audio, I sure. think, is that overall it has... Somebody's going to kill me for saying this, but it has lacked the sex appeal that television has had. You know, I look at sort of the flip side of this equation, and that is the ongoing discussions with the big networks. And I'm not here to hit the networks. They have, you know, obviously lots of things to worry about. But I look at what the storyline is about upfronts at the moment in prime time, and this is basically what it is, which is, hi, we're XYZ Broadcast Network, and our audience shrank XYZ percent last year, and our pricing is XYZ up this year. And brands go, "Eh, okay. And I get why. I get because they have metrics they have to deliver, and they have, you know, they don't... Procurement officers. Right, and they don't want to be the first person to be like, oh, well, you know what? I blew up the television budget, and then six months later, they're staring into the abyss of sales are down 11%. You know what? I I get it, and I'm not saying TV doesn't have a role to play. It has an enormous role to play, and I think lots of people have gone back to TV from bridge digital and all that stuff we're talking about. But what I just laid out there is not a sustainable story. It's just not. So... You know, it may not be next year and it may not be the year after that, but sooner or later we're going to get to a point where you can't walk in the room and go, audience declined, price is going up, and have everybody go, I'm all in. Network television and online video, and so every everything has its place. Yeah, It's just you do have to follow the audience, but everything has its value. It's very frustrating when I walk into a brand and I have done my homework, and I realize 90% of their money is going to television because they want to show the product. When's the last time you saw a movie that was better than the book? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying don't buy video, don't show your product. You can complement that with an emotional story or a connection via audio. So let's do this. I'm going to ask you two more things, then we're going to get into the lightning round. Oh, okay. The lightning round is unbelievably fun. Okay. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Well, good. Somebody (laughs) should be. What does the future of audio look like? You know, do you guys talk about a you know a sense of how this evolves? We talked a little bit about okay, it's more searchable and discoverable. You know, I, I talked to Connell Byrne, who's the president at iHeart Podcast Network, and he had a great little thing in the pod we did with him, which was basically, hey, if you're coming to me and you're talking to me about, hey, I want to do a true crime podcast, I'm like, mm, we got a thousand of those plus. But there are whole categories and genres that we really haven't penetrated yet, you know, in travel and in healthcare and in even business. What do you guys talk about in terms of here's what the next 24, 36, 48 months looks like? 
So NPR for years has been committed to producing the highest quality journalism and storytelling and looking to be on every imaginable platform that will exist. They were very early in the smart speaker space Mm. because they could see that a voice-activated world would be good for them. NPR has decades of meta-tagged, archived digital audio content. So they're uniquely poised for that. So having great content to go across platforms is cool. As I mentioned, keeping an eye on how people are consuming audio. Mm. And and recently I mentioned we launched Planet Money Indicator short-form daily audio content. We're launching daily political content. We have NPR News Now. We have Up First, which is daily news, one of the top listened to. And more recently, Life Kits, because NPR believes that there is evergreen audio content that could and should be produced in anticipation of a world where people will search and find audio content that Life addresses kits. all kinds of things from retirement oh, I see. to how to make friends as an adult. Life kits, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, you would think there's a lot of a lot of legs in that. Well, and the thing, again, I want to say about spoken word audio on demand is it's so additive and enriching. You can listen while you're gardening. You can ri- yeah. listen while you're riding a bike. Yep. So there's almost this insatiable appetite for what you could do. You can't ride a bike and read a book. At least I can. Last question before we do the lightning round. Why do you love this business? And by this business, I mean this industry, media, marketing, the space you've been in your whole career? I spend a lot of time traveling to meet with brands and agencies. And what's funnest to me is learning about their business, their customers, their challenges, their competitors, their marketing strategy. Mm. It's like being a business anthropologist or something. It's an adventure after adventure. Mm. And we're very lucky we are able to spend time and have really high-quality meetings with great brands and great agencies. And they share a lot about their business challenges and customers. And to me, it's fascinating. Mm. That is a great answer. We've had a lot of answers to that question. That's one of my favorites. All right, lightning round. Jeannie, here we go. You ready? Yep. All right. Favorite digital experience, not your own? My... Apps when I travel, hotel and airline, and believe it or not, I mean, I love my apps, but I'm one of these people that shuts down and <laughs> tries not to use any digital after that just means you're ahead, six o'clock. You're ahead of the rest of us. That's, that's where the rest <laughs> of us. PM. That's that's where the rest of us are going. Most used social platform. LinkedIn. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, that that follows. It's the one I use the least. Favorite city in the world? Rome. It's the confluence of the antiquity with all the other centuries, uh, layered on top modern, crazy fun people who all talk at once, eat too much, and are just wildly fun. It's a mess, but awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorites, too. A perfect day not in the office is spent how? Hiking with my daughter. That's a great answer. Do you have a particular sort of place that you enjoy doing that? (sighs) Montana. 
Ooh. Idaho, yeah. We like, like real the West. hiking places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not this nonsensical East Coast stuff. No, last not the year, White Mountains. No. We did the Canadian Rockies last year. It was awesome. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. Best piece of content you've recently consumed of any kind. So Netflix series, book, sure. anything. So two things, White Lies, which was an investigative series done by NPR about the murder of a white minister in Selma during the civil rights. I mean, it's it's a heart stopper, but also RBG, the documentary of Ruth Bader Oh, it was great, Ginsburg. wasn't it? Yeah, it was really yeah. great. I was lucky I watched the film. Uh, what, what is it called? On the Subject, subject of, of Sex? Subject of Sex, I think, or something. It helped me, but it was just... She's an incredible I watched being. it in reverse order. So I saw the documentary first, and then I saw the movie. But my daughter, who's 15, going on 40, she loved it. She loved the documentary. Absolutely loved it. We now have a little RBG figurine that is like... <laughs> it's, it's not a bobblehead. No, no, it's not a bobblehead. <laughs> she's got a gavel, and she's like right below the television <laughs> in the family room. Awesome. Competitor that you most admire... I love the job BBC does reporting mm. on uh, U.S. news. It's always fun to me when I read something that U.S. journalists have published and then I jump over to BBC to see what their take yeah. is on it. I think they do a great job. But in the broader sense of most admired and game changer, I would have to say Netflix. Yeah, they're Pretty remarkable. Everybody was poo-pooing them. I remember what the analysts were saying. Oh, they're never going to make these numbers. They're losing money, which they also said about Amazon for a long time. But they just kept their heads down, focused on serving up the best content they could. And, you know, they changed the world, frankly. They did. They did. <laughs> they're about to get a lot more competition. but they I know. But they've done a magnificent job. Best piece of career advice you've either given or received? I would say work for people who see you, hmm. see who you really are, and care about what you're doing and where you're going. That's pretty good, especially in these, these days. Thing people should know about you that they don't. My daughter and I have visited 49 out of 50 states in the United States. Really? Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> What's the one? Alaska. <laughs> well, that's a little tougher to get to. It's supposed to be fantastic, by the way. Yeah, we're, we're thinking about it <laughs> in the next two it's or far, three years. It's far, right? Like it's, it's like a commitment. I mean, yeah, that's... no, it takes a lot of planning. We, we want to do really cool stuff. Yeah, and just getting there is not easy, it seems to me. Yeah, but you know what? Getting to the bitter root to fly fish in Montana is hard too. So we don't we don't mind that. You're not intimidated we were just in by Thailand. this at all. Oh, were you? Yeah, it was fantastic, but it's 17 hours to Seoul and then 8 hours down to Bangkok. So that's not easy, but it just we love to figure out all the adventurous little things to do when we get there. There's probably not been a more NPR moment to end on than that. That is deeply aspirational for me. Gina, thank you so much for doing this. You Thanks. were fantastic. Robert, it was great. Thank so you. we'd love to have you back maybe. All right, fantastic. That's a yes. All right. Yes. Okay. We're going to make you say it out loud. <laughs> yes. We keep a record. <laughs> Thanks so much. That was another episode of The Human Element. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to find us anywhere you find your pods. And if you are so motivated, Jason, should they subscribe? Absolutely. And give us a like. I like that as well. Fantastic. We'll be back out to you real soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.